2: Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show Podcast, Hour 2.
1: Greetings, conversationalists. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson across America. The phone number, 877-973-7425. If you text Eric, E-R-I-C-K to 33777, you can follow me around social media. You get the show notes, the live stream, podcast, so much more. You should subscribe to the podcast. Helps a ton. Sadly, It does. I mean, it's a great podcast because it's the radio show, but you should be listening on your local radio station. Now, we got to move on to other stuff. Um, there's going to be a tendency, I think, in conservative talk radio and, and news coverage to obsess about the play-by-play of the presidential election for the rest of the year. Uh, and I will, of course, cover it, but there's a lot of other stuff happening in the world Uh, And it's stuff you need to know about, not just here, but abroad. Uh, There's a lot of news that affects you on a daily basis, and it should be covered because I want you to be the smartest people in talk radio. And we have to turn our attention to the Red Sea, sadly, yet again. CENTCOM is reporting the deaths of two U.S. Navy SEALs. There was a ship in the Red Sea off the coast of Somalia, I guess the Gulf of Aden, actually. And it was boarded and commandeered by American military personnel, including the SEALs. The ship was carrying weapons to the Houthi from Iran. And it has been, um, it it disappeared. They disappeared. They're presumed dead after a, multi-day search, 10 days, looking for two missing Navy SEALs. There is now a recovery operation under the way to find the bodies. It's a large expanse of ocean in which they will have to search. For those of you not familiar with the area, let me, let me give you the geography. Um, you have... If you know where Africa is, the eastern side of Africa, you have Egypt, then Sudan, Eritrea, Djibouti, Somalia. You've got Saudi Arabia on the other side of the Red Sea. The Red Sea filters down into this area that is um, it's contested right now. The Bab el mandeb is a very narrow strait of water that leads from the Gulf of Aden into the Red Sea. The Gulf of Aden is formed with... Yemen to the north and, so- and and Somalia to the south of it, which then spills out into the Arabian Sea. There's a large expanse of water, the Arabian Sea, and it is from there that the, um, the SEALs engaged with this naval vessel that was hauling Iran-supplied missile parts and other weaponry for the Houthi. So there's a large area of water that has to be covered to find the bodies of the seals if they might be found. 21,000 square miles. It shouldn't have happened. It should not have happened. The seals should still be alive the Biden administration's foreign policy has been about a level of incrementalism. And in that level of incrementalism, they have emboldened our enemies. This is just the truth. You may not like it, but it's the truth. The truth, is that the Biden administration, had they thrown a hard punch early on with the Houthi, they would have shut it down, but they chose not to. Instead, what they chose to do was to send press releases and say, oh, if you don't stop, we're gonna be real angry. Oh, if you don't stop, we're gonna be mad. Oh, if if, if you don't stop, we're gonna do something. Oh, if you don't stop, We're going to send some hashtags on social media. Oh, if you don't stop, we might just do something. And then when they did it, they literally sent out an advisory and said, hey, the attacks are going to start in 10 hours. They literally, I don't know that you appreciate that this happened. They literally sent out a notice that they were going to attack. And it gave the Houthi time to batten down the hatches and move things around. So when we attacked, we couldn't get everything. We couldn't blow it all up. And in the process, Iran decided to rearm them. We decided to engage the ship with the arms on them, and two SEALs are now dead. If when the Houthi first started, we had bombed the snot out of them, I guarantee you they would have gotten the message. Iran is in the process of starting a regional war in the Middle East that implicates us. Iran has fired at positions in Syria. Iran has fired at positions in Iraq. Iran has fired at positions in Pakistan. We have responded and the Pakistanis have responded. Now, there's a developing situation here that isn't getting enough American news coverage, but directly implicates us and drags us in to this Middle Eastern war. Iran and Pakistan have started firing at us. Pakistan is a nuclear nation. Pakistan is bordered to its west by Afghanistan and Iran and to its east by India. India and Pakistan hate each other. When I was a kid growing up overseas, I got to have two birthday parties one year. One, because my Pakistani friends wouldn't come with my Indian friends, so they came at, at, at two different moments. I had uh, We had a housekeeper from India. If I had Pakistani friends come over, they would just treat her horribly. Uh, it was difficult to have my friends from Pakistan come over because of the way they would treat our housekeeper, Anna, from India. The Pakistanis and the Indians, they do not like each other. It is a uh, Yankee versus Confederate rivalry. So Pakistan and India and Bangladesh all used to be one British territory. When India won its sovereignty from Britain, a war began and they split apart. The Muslim territories became Bangladesh and Pakistan. There are still Muslims in India. But India broke apart. India used to be much bigger than it is, and it included Pakistan and, and Bangladesh. And Pakistan and India have had border disputes for a very long time. They've never actually settled the northern tip of their border and have regularly engaged in shots with each other. So you have India and Pakistan are now nuclear nations. Pakistan is being fired at by the Iranians. Uh, the Indians essentially have a muddy is, is a dictator. Their prime minister is actually a pretty strong man. Uh, the Indians are cheering on the Iranians, hoping for injuries with the Pakistanis. The Indians and the Iranians don't actually like each other, except they both hate Pakistan. Afghanistan is caught in the middle. The Afghan Taliban, they don't particularly like the Pakistanis, but appreciate them giving them safe haven while the Americans were in charge of Afghanistan. They don't like the Iranians. Uh, they don't particularly like the ISIS people who have taken up shop in Afghanistan, who have been sympathetic with the Iranians. It's a complicated situation of a bunch of people who give proof to the statement that uh, the enemy of our enemy is our friend, because none of them like each other. They're all enemies of each other. And so they've made alliances variously with different parties because of who they hate the most. And right now, Pakistan and Iran are taking shots at each other. Iran's funding the Houthi to take shots at us and the Israelis. Iran is funding Hamas to take shots at at Israel and Hezbollah to take shots at Israel. They've been firing shots at us in Iraq, and they've been firing shots inside Syria with their new ballistic missile capabilities that they have clearly refined since they retaliated after Soleimani. So we had a guy call the other day. He was very angry with me. He said, you got it wrong, you got it wrong, you got it wrong. Because I said Iran had never done what it did last week, firing these ballistic missiles. He's like, Soleimani, they fired after Soleimani. Yes, yes, they did, but they were different missile types. Iran has never done what it did last week. It has refined its missile capability and extended their range and made them much more accurate. In fact, Western officials are marveling at just how accurate Iran has been able to make its missiles since the Soleimani attack. They're clearly on the verge of announcing a nuclear missile, and they're letting us all know that they've now got strategic capabilities to target fairly accurately. Iran wants to bring about the apocalypse, we treat them as some sort of rational actor and they're not. They're rational in a different way. They're religious zealots who believe they can bring about the apocalypse. And with it, the Mahdi and Jesus. And the Muslims believe Jesus is a helper of the Mahdi. They don't believe Jesus is the son of God as Christians do. They believe he's a prophetic figure who will return and help with the apocalypse. And Iran would love to bring about the apocalypse. And what is the United States doing? Sending press releases. The Biden administration, like the Obama administration, thought they could think differently about the Middle East. You know who really thought differently about the Middle East? Donald Trump. Remember John Kerry saying there would never be peace in the Middle East without a two-state solution? Uh, Last I checked, the Abraham Accords brought about much peace in the Middle East without a two-state solution. The Saudis were on the verge of cutting a peace deal with Israel. That's one reason a lot of people think Hamas engaged when they did, to short-circuit it. There's no love between Hamas and Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia now wants to be seen as some sort of leader in bringing about some level of peace in the Middle East with some level of two-state solution. Into this comes these idiots in the Biden administration who think they know best. They've been infiltrated by people sympathetic to the Iranians. We know they've been infiltrated by people sympathetic to the Iranians. The, the only question is, are some of them actually paid spies by the Iranians? And the Biden administration has shown weakness. They've continued to engage Qatar as an honest broker when Qatar plays both sides. It's notable that the United Arab Emirates, Oman, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and Jordan do not trust Qatar, and yet somehow we're trying to treat them as an honest broker. The level of naivete in this administration. And again, you can say a lot of critical things about Donald Trump, and you know I have. But his Middle East policy was gold. He was surrounded by realists who understood the picture, who understood Saudi Arabia will either be our friend or our enemy. And right now, Saudi Arabia is our friend. Joe Biden has done a very good job of trying to alienate them. In the process, he took the Houthi off the terror list. It allowed rearmament of the Houthi. It's emboldened the Houthi. And now we're having to deal with the fact that Joe Biden decided he could outthink Donald Trump on the Middle East. And all he did was think stupider. And now two SEALs are dead. And those two SEALs died because of the Biden administration's policies, because the Biden administration showed weakness, because the Biden administration decided that they could do better than Donald Trump, and in fact, have done far worse than anything Donald Trump did in the Middle East. The Biden administration is putting a lot of lives at risk and has funded the terrorists by giving Iran free range to do what they did. Now two American SEALs are dead. And no one in the American media, no one in the establishment in Washington will hold Joe Biden accountable for these deaths. Deaths in the line of fire and in service to their country. God bless them and their families who are gonna mourn their loss. But the God's honest truth is they would be alive had Joe Biden not so willfully chosen to screw up policy in the Middle East. Welcome, it is Eric Erickson here. Happy to have you with me. You can text DATA to 33777, the word DATA, D-A-T-A, to 33777. Subscribe to my new book. Get the show notes as well. Let's go to Jim here on the phones. Welcome, Jim. How are you? Just fine. Caught me off guard. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, yeah,
0: I just I had a comment uh, the other day. I was listening, and you had several calls of people that were, um, I guess, doing a a, a non-vote or a protest vote, um, you know, thinking that, uh, um, you know, mid like say, middle of the road. I consider myself middle of the road. You know, I I agree with ninety-five percent of the stuff on your show. I agree with ninety-five percent of your callers, and it's just if I think if those of us that are frustrated uh, don't, you know pick the lesser of two evils and 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 just leave everything to the extremists on the right and the left i actually think that those in power that that were really frustrated with would would like that if we opted out and stopped participating
1: i i do think there's a concerted effort by some to try to to keep uh, people from you know one one of the tactics to keep people from voting is to run a relentlessly negative and nasty campaign. It alienates people, so only the hardcore of the bases show up. and And the Democrats' theory has always been that they have a bigger base than the GOP. In the past, that was true, but just consider this: Donald Trump wins most polls with registered voters. In the past, the Democrats typically won the registered voters and lost the likely voters. And now it's it's somewhat the opposite because it's college educated people tend to be the most reliable voters, and they've moved towards the Democrats. I am sympathetic, though, to those who say, you know what, a pox on both their houses. If if both parties keep um, putting up candidates like this, they're not going to vote. Uh, the, the key here is, is to remember what happened in 2000. George Bush won by about 536 votes in Florida. Carl Rove has, has written about this. This is nothing I'm, I'm making up here. Uh, the Republicans realized after 2000 that a significant number of evangelicals decided they didn't like either candidate. And by sitting out the race and not voting, the Bush campaign realized we got to get these people to engage on our side. And so they spent four years pushing a lot of things evangelicals wanted and wound up in 2004 winning a majority of the vote with a massive wave of evangelical support. And it was the evangelicals choosing to sit it out in 2000 that forced the wake-up call, even as Bush still won without them, uh, it forced a wake-up call for the GOP and and. You just got to steward your vote as you think will get the most attention to improve the game. Why would you bank with people who hate you? John Rich, you know, John Rich and Ben Carson, Larry Elder, other like-minded banking experts have asked uh, why this happens. They came up with Old Glory Bank. It's a bank that respects you, values your values, freedom, faith, family, the flag. They created America's online bank with amazing technology that makes it easy and convenient to bank anywhere. With their new old glory cash-in, it's a convenient way to deposit cash into your online account at over 85,000 of your favorite retail locations across America. They offer home loans with VA, conventional FHA loans. They have a great budgeting feature called Goals that help you budget and save for things that matter, like a vacation or retirement. They have no monthly fees on their checking or savings accounts. You won't get all that from a bank that hates you. So cancel your bank before it cancels you switch to the pro-america anti-woke bank open your account today with my bank oldglorybank.com takes just eight minutes old glory bank it's oldglorybank.com they're going to stand with you terms and conditions apply member fdic equal housing lender oldglorybank.com it is my bank it's a traditional bank it's got great online options oldglorybank.com greetings welcome it's eric erickson here across the united states The phone number, 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program, delighted to have you with me. We gotta move on to other things. I have been commenting here regularly over the last couple of years about the experts. When the experts say something, uh, the the odds are if you believe the opposite, you're probably gonna be safe. Uh, With that being said, China is China is probably going to invade Taiwan this year. Why? Here's the headline in Axios, the left-wing site. And by the way, Axios has become explicitly left-wing over the past number of years, and it's writing in editorial style. The, the headline, China is unable to invade Taiwan, most U.S. and Taiwanese experts say. So I guess they're going to be invaded this year. Most U.S. and Taiwanese experts polled in a new survey say China lacks the capabilities to effectively carry out an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, but is well positioned to execute a blockade. China's growing aggression towards Taiwan has made the region a dangerous potential flashpoint and could trigger a military conflict between the U.S. and China. The survey conducted by the Center for Strategic International Studies, China Power Project and Taiwan's Institute for National Security and uh, Defense and Security Research, polled 52 U.S. experts and 35 Taiwanese experts. Just 26 percent of the U.S. experts and only 17 percent of the Taiwanese experts agreed China has the military capability to effectively launch an amphibious invasion of Taiwan within the next five years. One reason for the assessment is that an amphibious invasion would require a much larger commitment of military forces than a quarantine or blockade, and the operations involved would be significantly more complicated. Experts from both countries largely agreed China has the ability to carry out a quarantine or a blockade within the next five years. 90% of U.S. experts and 62% of Taiwan experts said China could enact a quarantine, a limited blockade targeting commercial rather than military activity that would be carried out not on China's military but by its Coast Guard and other law enforcement vessels. 80% of U.S. experts and 60% of Taiwan experts said China could execute a blockade. Taiwanese experts had a lower threat perception towards China than U.S. experts and consistently rated China as having lower capabilities than the U.S. respondents. Look, if the experts are all agreed that China cannot invade Taiwan in the next five years, you should probably be prepared for an invasion of Taiwan. What they don't seem to get is that the economic stability of China continues to collapse, and Xi Jinping is going to need a scapegoat. Typically, Xi Jinping saber rattles and at some point, all that saber rattling is going to lead to a military conflict somewhere in the world so that the young Chinese men who can't find women to marry find something to be involved with. Even if they get themselves all killed, that'll be good for Xi. He doesn't care. Taiwan is ripe for the picking. And he wants, he covets unity with Taiwan. He views that as part of his legacy. The idea that the experts say it can't happen in the next five years probably means it's going to happen. The experts get so much wrong. That being said, I'll tell you what I think. I am no expert. But here is something that I know. China does not have a military that has been tested militarily. What's the last war China's military has been in? They haven't had one. There's been no significant Chinese military engagement. And it's one thing to train. It's another thing to live it out. The U.S. military has been battle-hardened in Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world of like, we know how to fight. The Chinese technology has not been proven. Keep in mind, when China launched its biggest aircraft carrier, it immediately caught fire within a week at sea. They fixed it. It has now been cracking in half. China's top destroyer caught on fire a couple of weeks ago and unsalvageable. It turns out the Chinese nuclear missile program, the nuclear missile techs have been fueling them with water, not gasoline. It's very much like I suspect we're seeing in Russia, where on paper the Russians had this incredible military an incredible operation and incredible technology. And in reality, the Ukrainians have messed it all up for the Russians. The Chinese have not been battle-tested. That being said, they still have a big enough military to cause problems. They have a big enough military to take action, and they have a big enough military to try. I just think nowadays when, when the experts are so confident in something, we should be less confident because so many of the experts today we have don't have real expertise. They just went to some Ivy League institution and sit around with a circle of jerks at a think tank and and try to come up with ideas. A lot of them don't actually have proficiency and skills. And often, often, the experts premise their ideas on on available information and not private information. And the private information can be more revealing. Now, all that being said, there's a tie-in problem here. All the world's richest economies are piling on debt. Ours and China's, in particular, as a, a debt as a share of GDP. So Japan's is two hundred fifty-five percent debt to GDP. China is eighty-three percent debt to GDP. China is at. Eight, I'm sorry yeah China's at 83 the U.S is at 123 percent debt to GDP our public debt has just skyrocketed we're above 34 trillion dollars and you know what that means that means less money to fund the military our this is this is again from axios it's tied in here with the China story in the last century the U.S federal debt has risen from an inflation adjusted 403 billion dollars in 1923 to $33.17 trillion in 2024 and is rolling past $34 trillion. The U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio surpassed 100% in 2013 and stands at 123%. Virtually every other major government around the world has tapped into global debt markets. Japan's is the highest. China's is growing. It's over 80%. This means that the debt service payments continue to go up. And now in this country, the debt service payments have gotten so big that it eats into our discretionary spending and our military budget. The Republicans and Democrats in Congress have proposed a military budget of about $825 billion out of a budget of a close to like $1.79 trillion budget. Most of that goes to defense, but it's all discretionary. It's not Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security payments. It's also not debt service payments. This is a massive national security issue that few people are willing to pay attention to. And by the way, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats want to talk about it. And you know, the sad thing is, and and the truth is, the the painful truth is, if we don't get a handle on the debt, you know what the solution is going to be? Tax increases for everybody. Including the middle class. Republicans and Democrats alike will ultimately conclude the only thing they can do is raise taxes. I'm already starting to see it, even for, from moderate and, and slightly conservative sides, saying we're going to have to readjust the tax code and everybody's going to pay more, including the middle class. And they're honestly, they're right if we can't figure out the problem. Republicans aren't offering to cut enough. Democrats aren't offering to cut enough. Democrats don't want to cut anything. Republicans can't agree on what to cut. At some point, our taxes are going to go up to deal with this issue. That's going to slow the economy more. It's going to increase the debt-to-GDP ratio. You know the best solution to fix the debt-to-GDP ratio? It's to increase the GDP. If you spark economic momentum in the country, just as a ratio, the debt comes down. As the GDP grows, the debt-to-GDP ratio goes down. You grow the denominator, the numerator doesn't become as big a problem. If you focus on trying to shrink the numerator, you're never going to shrink the numerator. You focus on growing the denominator, you reduce debt as a percentage of GDP. So you increase economic mobility in this country, increase economic opportunity in this country. But the way you do that is you do tax cuts and deregulation. And at some point, neither side is going to want to cut taxes anymore. And so you're going to slow the economy even further, exacerbate the problem. We're going to get even more stagnation. This is just this. You don't have to be an expert to understand this. All you got to do is go to college, take a basic economic class, and you understand this. You've got to spur the economy in this country. If you raise taxes, you slow down the economy. Deregulation helps. Elevating the small businesses in this country help. Most Americans work in small businesses, not large businesses. Did y'all know that. Like 55% of Americans work for a small business, not a big business. A non-publicly traded company, a privately held company, most Americans work for those, not publicly traded massive companies. If you spur those small companies and those privately held companies on, you grow the GDP, you shrink the debt-to-GDP ratio. Then you spur greater tax revenue to Washington without raising taxes, and you use that money to find things to cut, and pay down the debt. It's just common sense. But there is no common sense in Washington DC these days. They have no desire for common sense. And both parties, and it is both parties, both parties have worked tirelessly to wreck our financial position. The only time Republicans care about the size of the debt is when Democrats are in charge of the White House. Otherwise, they will spend just as much as the Democrats. And both parties are going to bring about our economic ruination if they don't figure out this problem. So, you know, I would urge you guys, honestly, to get serious about, about pushing your members of Congress to cut, make cut, stand, and fight. There's only so much the Republicans can do when they have like a two-seat majority in the House and they don't control the Senate. But they could put up some fight. Chip Roy in Congress has had a plan to do this. And you know one way to balance the budget? Balancing the budget would be a great start. Passing budgets would be a great start. Congress hasn't actually completed its budget process in about 27 years. You know an easy way to get fiscally right in this country is to go back to the 2019 budget and just pass that outline again? Pass that. You'd have some cuts across the board, but not a lot. But within about 15 years, you'd balance the budget. And that would restore things without having to do major tax increases. But neither party wants to get serious. Neither party wants to deal with it. It's causing a major national security crisis. As China, its debt-to-GDP ratio is way less than ours. It gives them more wiggle room to build up their military while we're just fretting about what China's going to do. And both sides, both sides are responsible. I want you to be responsible. When it comes to your technology, vision computers can help you. They can build your laptops and desktops, and then Vision Computer can be your in-house IT department. They can save you a ton of money uh, by building you the PCs that you want need instead of the one-size-fits-all big-box store solution, and then by being the guys you call when you have a problem. So you're not paying an in-house IT guy. You're calling Vision Computers. Wonderful idea, visioncomputers.com or 404 Compute. Any one of you nationwide can do this for your home or your office. You don't want to be your kid's IT department? Well, Vision Computers can offload that for you. You don't want to be your secretary's IT department? Let Vision build her computer for you. She'll get a phone number she can call 15 seconds or less. Get the answer faster than Google search. Visioncomputers.com or 404compute. You let Vision build the computers for you and your company or you and your home for your kids. You got a kid planning on college next year? Now is the time to start getting with Vision, scoping out the project for Vision to be able to get your kid a a computer for college, and then you'll have the peace of mind that Vision is gonna take care of your kid when they're in college, and you're not gonna have to be IT from remote. Vision can be that person. Visioncomputers.com or 404 compute. If you call Vision, tell them I sent you, ask about Eric Erickson's special, Vision can save even more money. It's 404 compute. Any one of you nationwide can call them, mention me, save even more money
2: Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com.
1: Well, the Dow and S&P have all reached record highs for a short time. The Dow climbed over 38,000 for the first time ever. Right now, it's up 110 points. S&P 500 up 13 points. Uh, Just remarkable. The Dow and the S&P doing as well as they have. And we're going to find out, I guess, about uh, Fed policy rates here soon. and. The markets seem to be encouraged that things are returning to normal. Things are rebounding. <laughs> events, events can change things. Now, I want to take Joe's phone call. Joe, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Hey, Eric, doing well. Nice to speak with you again. Um, hey, am I imagining this, or did we balance the budget when Clinton was president with the help of uh, Georgia, a
0: Republican speaker? What's his name?
1: Uh, yep, yeah, New Gingrich. Yes, the last time we actually passed a budget and it happened to be balanced, was 1997.
2: Okay, so we got done for that century, so now we just need to do it one time this century.
1: Yeah, okay. So let me give you the backstory here. This is actually kind of interesting. So in 1974, Congress passed the Congressional Budget Act that outlines how Congress will pass the budget. Essentially, you pass what's a budget outline or a budget resolution and then you pass 12 appropriations bills that conform to that budget resolution. That, that's what Congress decided in 1974 with the Budget Act. So you pass a budget resolution, and then you pass the appropriations bills. There are 12 appropriations bills. Since 1974, when Congress outlined that structure, it has done this exactly four times. In 1977, in 1989, in 1995, and in 1997. In 1997, they restructured taxes and included small tax increases for most Americans, and it balanced the budget. Uh, It was actually the small businesses in 1997— were actually treated very well. And and a lot of Republicans, even though it it included some tax increases, actually treat that 1997 budget agreed to between the Gingrich Republicans and the Clinton administration as as a pretty good budget that wound up sparking some economic activity in the country. Um, Here's the catch, though. 77, 89, 95, and 97 are the only four times Congress has actually complied with its obligation to pass a budget. In only one of those, 1977, did they actually pass it all on time? <laughs> Everything else was delayed. Um, it's an unwieldy process, and one Congress just seems incapable of doing. Maybe they need to revisit the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 because they just seem never capable of doing it. Uh, only four times ever have they bothered to do it the way they're supposed to do it. So, what they do instead is they pass continuing resolutions. And these continuing resolutions, they agree to just grow government by a percentage point or two and just fund everything uh, and and overtime restructure. It's a terrible way to do business, but it's what they do. Uh, They have committed this time if they can't get something done to do automatic cuts for the first time, which wouldn't be a bad thing. And maybe we should let it get to that point where they're forced to do automatic cuts, but they would also be cutting the defense budget, which people don't want.